Well, here we go again. Way too much information, way too little time to share it with all of you. So I'm gonna cut right to the chase. This is the Tulsa Tough Super Sode. Yes, it is a super episode, meaning a lot of things to talk about. Six races, three men, three women, one insane weekend of crit racing action in Tulsa Tough. We've got four people on the show, me, Celine and Alan, you know very, very well. And also the professor himself, Adam Mills from Source Endurance, who is giving you insight and information like none other into how these races were won and what it all means for the future. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We've got an hour and a half of material to go through, so I'm going to be really brief here. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is the website where you can find out about all the shows. We are currently running a donor drive. It's the first one that we've run since this show became part of the network. They took a break during the pandemic because people were stretched. Things were a little bit higher priority items like toilet paper back in April of 2020 and everything else since then. So at the network, we decided not to ask for money and donations back then. Things have changed, hopefully a little bit. The economy's gotten better. People have gone back to work. And so the powers that be have decided that this would be a great time to do a donor drive. We would love it if you would become a supporter and subscriber of this network and help financially support this content creator owned effort. There's a lot of information about this donor drive. I will direct you to the funniest show, uh, uh, maybe on the network, but definitely in bike racing as a whole, the slow ride podcast. You can find out all you want about the donor drive and about the gifts that come with being a member and supporter of the wide angle podium. So listen to Matt, Tim, and Spencer. Find the real advice on the slow ride podcast and go there and learn more about our donor drive. Today's show is brought to you by Source Endurance. This would, of course, be the time that I tell you about all the wonderful things that you would get with Source Endurance when you go to look at its coaching services through source-e.net. But why would I bother to tell you about all the awesome things that Adam Mills, Kristen Arnold, Zach Allison, Taylor Ward can do for you when you can just hear about the insight that Adam brings to this episode to Tulsa Tough and that he will bring to all of his clients. It's the same level of attention to detail that Kristen, Zach, Taylor, Nikki, all of the coaches at Source Endurance bring to everything. So this episode is itself the best ad possible for why you should go to source-e.net and use the promo code Criterium Nation, all one word, for $50 off your first month coaching. Super sewed time. We're going to get in with Tulsa. We're going to go in deep and we're going to find out everything that we missed, everything we saw, everything we saw, thought we saw. And we're doing that right now. (laughs) 
so it is officially 9.15 Eastern Time on the East Coast. That makes it 6.15 in San Diego, California, where our guest Adam Mills is. Time, as I've been told, has no meaning in the city of Boise because it is a mysterious location that doesn't really exist. And Celine has recently informed us that in Charlottesville, they just got running water. So... How is everybody doing tonight? Celine, tell us about the running water in Charlottesville. Um, still no running water. <laughs> um, yeah, somehow a tree outside my parents' house got struck by lightning, and that somehow impacted the water in the house. So there's no running water. We're here drinking bottled water because, you know, it's good for the planet and all that. <clears throat> And the important thing is the rest of us have come appropriately hydrated. I have, of course, a glass full of flow formula because Carrie Warner told me that it's really great and I should plug him. And also a beautiful glass of Widow Jane from Brooklyn, New York. Went to the distillery a few months ago when I was up there with Michael Tan and the guys from Good Guys Racing. I can vouch the 13 year really solid. Alan. You have got some high-quality artisanal kombucha going tonight. What do you got going? It is artisanal, and it's also limited. It's the uh, Brew Doctor Just Peachy uh, summer flavor of kombucha. I liked their fall apple flavor a little bit more. You may or may not know that I'm a fan of apples, but yeah, it's getting the job done for tonight. And our guest, the esteemed professor, Adam Mills from Source Endurance, the head coach, and my former teammate, former as in like 20 years ago teammate, is joining us all the way from San Diego. I am guessing, Adam, guessing. Lost Abby. I am drinking a surplus uh, bottle of the trophy beer you get when you complete the Belgian waffle ride. And I've dumped it in this like steel cup and put our, our own koozie on it. But that's what it is. It's uh, the Belgian waffle ride beer. And Belgian waffle ride, of course, has a great relationship with Lost Abbey. There, uh, I think every rider gets Lost Abbey at the end of seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven hours of bike racing through what is somewhat of a road. When you finish the Belgian waffle ride, you get a bottle or tall boy of, Bel of Lost Abbey beer, special brewed for the event. So we are here to talk about Tulsa Tough, and Adam is going to educate us on how Tulsa Tough was won, how it was lost by some people, and about what makes it such a interesting and unique race. And I want to start with that basic premise here as my first question is, why is Tulsa such a unique race weekend? I can't think of another race weekend in the United States that comes with as much hype, as much anticipation, as much anxiety and as much participation by both people in our sport and people in the town. Why is Tulsa the super week of American crit racing. So when I, I, so I did the first 10 and I, I believe to this day, only one person has done all of them. And that is the famous Stefan Roth. I believe he has done every single Tulsa top. And I sent him a message actually and said, if you don't take a flyer as a 40 plus racer in the, in the pro race, I'll be really disappointed. We need this. All of us 40 plus guys need this. So it's really about us. Thank you, Stefan. 
But 20, 20 years ago or 16 years ago or whatever, it, it came out big. It was one of the first nighttime races that was properly lit. It had a whole bunch of people in it, had a whole lot of money, and they like they swung for the fences from the beginning. I I want to say it was one of the first criteriums to be live streamed, which kind of made me think if you're going to live stream your nighttime races, that's good because it means actually proper lighting on the course. We've all done races where you're like, I think this is turn three, but it might be turn two, but I won't know until I get into it because <laughs> it's so dark. Um, or the ones where they have cars in the sidelines that are like just shining lights onto the course and that's what you get. But I think those things kind of made it first to market. And it's in a really cool place and all the courses were like urban settings. You get a lot of fans, you know, Friday nights in that Blue Dome Bar District. Like that thing's nuts now. And it was crazy back in 2005. It was, it was really fun then too. So that's my like first impression of the whole thing. This is something, if you've never been to Tulsa Tough, if you've never done these races, the motto of the city is take Monday off or Monday is a holiday. So the city encourages people in the town to participate, spectate, be there, be a part of this community, which I think is unusual compared to a lot of cities that view bike racing and or any type of event as kind of a thing that they want to shun or push into a corner. But on top of it, if you stay at a hotel like the hotel that I was supposed to stay at, I got sick. I didn't get to go. Celine was supposed to be in Switzerland. She's in Charlottesville. Alan getting ready for nationals. So none of us were there. But if you stayed at the hotel, the double tree that I was going to stay at, you literally can walk to each race to the start of each race. It's not that hard. And, you know, that is something that's somewhat unique within the confines of American Crit Series, that you can park yourself in one location and not have to go out of your way to get to the event. The only other race series that I can think about in the United States that does that or follows that model is Gateway. All the events in Gateway are in the southern half of St. Louis. And if you park yourself in Tower Grove, like I used to, you can literally get to every single race within six or seven miles. And it's wonderful. Why are we not doing more of this? Why are we forcing ourselves to drive all over Georgia and South Carolina or to, you know, drive or fly our bikes to a bunch of different places? Why did Tulsa succeed at this? I don't have that answer, but I do know to tell you how walkable it is, to my knowledge, they walk the finish line truss from finish line to finish line every night. So when you're done, if you were to hang around long enough on Friday night, you would see the, the crew literally put the wheels down on the truss and they would walk it over to Saturday's course. And then they do the same thing on Sunday. At least at one point they did that. I don't know if they do it anymore. But it's definitely walkable if that's the case, right? Which is crazy. And also... From a racer's perspective, that was one of the best things last year when we were there is that we got to ride to and from uh, the race each night. And like the ride back to the host house after the race was like, I don't know, some some of the most fun nights that we had all season long. Like there's just something when you're talking about doing like the crit scene and just living like crit life, being able to ride to and from the races is just like as good as it gets. And Celine. Tell us if we're right or wrong. The after party on Sunday night 
Is it off the chain? Why am I the spokesperson for this? Because <laughs> <laughs> you because you were the person who was on her way to the after party last year when I saw you. Alan was already at the bar, apparently. That's true. Yeah. And actually, the after party scene has shifted kind of away from Sound Pony and towards this place called Majestic. And from what I saw this weekend, just on people's Instagram stories and whatnot, it seems like it's blowing up even more. So maybe at some point it'll shift back towards Sound Pony once Majestic gets too busy and too crazy for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, blowing up the spot, man. (laughs) I mean, it's already blowing up. It's not me. (laughs) So let's actually talk about some bike races. Let's talk about some bike racing. So... Each night of Tulsa Tough or each day of Tulsa Tough is, you know, a is a unique course itself. The first night, McNally's group Blue Dome Crit is the sprinters race, I think, is what it's become known as because breakaways here very rarely succeed and the the big sprint teams come out to play. Just a quick recap of how it ended up on the women's side. The the race was won by Skylar Schneider of Legion of Los Angeles. That was not a surprise for anybody who watched the race. Jennifer Valente, the Olympic gold medalist in track in the Omnium from 2020-21 from Virginia Blue Ridge, comes in second. And Maggie Coles-Lister, queen sprinter from the great state of Canada or country of Canada. I guess we have to give them that, that since they, they actually are their own country. For DNA Pro Cycling, comes in third. Adam, you and I were talking during the course of, of this race. We were talking about how the Legion of Los Angeles men's game plan from 2021 got translated over to the women, but none of the women's teams had adjusted to that game plan. Is that a fair assessment of how Legion comes to win that race at Blue Dome? For the women, I would say, man, it's so the women's race is so good now. In a lot of ways, it's as good as the men, maybe better. Like the big example is you have you have Peta or Peta Mullins, who is a multiple national champion, like one of the probably one of the greatest female Criterium racers in history, and she's not a favorite. Like, what's that about? And and not only that, but she's not even on the list. Like it is Skylar, Kendall, and Maggie Cole's sister. Oh, and there's this multiple national champion from Australia who has crazy hard criteriums, but she's not on the A-list of, of, of people. So I think the Legion women are the most talented team there. They're the most experienced, I'm saying team, like the sum of the body of work of the, of the writers. And they're the most talented, they're the most experienced. And man, you can't throw much at them that they haven't seen. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to outfox Skylar and Kendall and, um, and Alexis. You're going to outfox those three. Oh, and that's not the other ones on the that's it's going to be almost impossible to be it's a it's a hard it's a big ask and watching them race on friday was more or less like a master class of of how to race a criterion like the subtle this this like definite confidence and awareness that we are the dominant team or the best team here but this subtle way they apply it so celine one thing that you and i and alan and our group texts we're talking about is how Legion came to control that race and how nobody 
from the other teams as a team perspective were able to challenge them. And what we notice is that there was a line of black at the front and then there was a mass of colors. The only team that really tried at least by appearance to assemble was DNA and they put three riders up front, but they sort of got scattered. What is it about that that tells you that Legion is here to play and nobody else has really figured out how to come over the top of that? I mean, I kind of think it goes back to what Mills was saying with just like the depth of the team and all of these other teams maybe have one or two riders who have the same depth as one or two riders on Legion, but as a unit cannot compete with that. And at the end of the race, what matters is having that unit and having the numbers. Otherwise, if you can't trust the teammate who's in front of you to bring you to the finish, then you're by yourself and you by yourself, no matter how strong you are, it's a big ask to go up against the Legion train. But we need to talk about a very strong somebody else. And that's Jennifer Valenti. She has a gold medal from track racing. She has the pedigree and the profile for an Omnium rider to go up against somebody like Skylar. And she had that opportunity at the very end to out sprint Skylar. Was there something that Legion or that Skylar did, Adam, that you think separated her from Jennifer Valenti? Or is this one of those, you know, sprinter phenotype things that just because you're really great on the track doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be superior to somebody who's a sprinter on a road team. First part of the rant is I don't think the camera should ever show anyone beyond halfway back in the peloton. Like the races are big enough. Everyone in the back is just not getting dropped. The race is happening in the front 50 people. I don't, I don't need to see who's last go through turn one ever. It, it honestly doesn't matter because they don't influence the race. So that's like 50% of the television time can be saved that way. And we can get a better view of what's happening. So that's just like me ranting about it. And the reason I say that is because I was really interested in watching who is the sweeper for Skylar in that, in that readout. Was it Kendall or was she leading it out? Does anyone remember? Kendall was leading it out. I think it might've been Alexis who was sweeping. Whoever was the sweeper, like that is the, that person needs a high five for sure. Because they didn't, they weren't blatant about it, but they just, you know, you hedge a little differently to kind of force the other person to work a lot. And so Jennifer was in the wind almost the entire last lap. Can you explain what a sweeper does? Because I think that one of the things is that we throw out a term like sweeper or coming over the top, and then we assume everybody knows what it is. And even those of us who think we know what it is, like me, is just like, yeah, no, I'm wrong. The lead out train is only, and it only works because of the specific draft that every rider has. And then within teammates, you don't fight each other for that draft. The last person on that train, their draft is a very coveted piece of real estate. So with the Legion men last year, I think on this show as mentioned a few times, like the most coveted piece of real estate and the hardest piece of real estate to win is the piece behind Justin Williams' rear wheel. And there's a fierce battle for it. And I've told Justin and Corey, like, I want to see your rear facing GoPro on your, on your bikes because that would be amazing. But you have, if you put another rider behind the sprinter, then that rider battles everybody for that sprinter's wheel. Um, if you have the personnel and the depth of the team that you can 
you have the resources to stick a rider back there, that's that's a very huge, enormous luxury. Not a lot of teams have that luxury, but the ones that do, like the Legion women, you have someone basically to run interference. So if if Valente, because so, Jennifer Valente is fantastic, and if she was on Skylar's wheel, no one would challenge her for it because she is she's big, she's powerful, she knows what she's doing, and she's racing on the track, so she knows those like subtle ways to put other people in the wind, not herself. Whoever ran sweeper, I, I forget who it was and I should have watched it a third time, but that was the person that kept Jennifer from getting the clean line as clean as Skyler's. And then when they came out of the last corner, I think it was Kendall kind of did this very subtle, like over pedal with the one leg to kind of hedge a little bit into Jennifer, which made her check up just a tiny bit. If you, if you know to look for it, you can see it. And I'm not saying Kendall did it on purpose because at that point everyone's redlined, and some of it is just like I have to keep my bike upright, and this is the this is the the flat the you know the, the, the blowback from that, so I don't fall. But we've all been there where you're like, am I pedaling straight or am I not? And so, but even if it wasn't, it looked like it it wasn't on purpose, but it might have been. So, but but they're all really good at that at that level. They like if I were to tell. If I were to tell anyone in the top five, I had the results like right here. Um, what like tell them about that hedging and about that like subtle stuff? They'd all be like, "Yeah, sure, of course that makes sense." And, and then all of you for also, obviously, you know, there's a lot of head nodding. So. There's a name here that we need to watch out for because she's a young rider and she appears later in eighth place at Blue Dome was Olivia Cummins of Lux. Yes. I want to focus on her for the next day at the Tulsa Arts District because she becomes a critical component of that. But we need to talk about the men at Blue Dome, which last year was a Legion of Los Angeles just stomping of the field. The result this year was similar in the sense that Legion went one, two and best buddies goes in third place. I mean, so it's exactly the same as it was last year. Just the personnel are different. Ty Magner of Legion of Los Angeles wins. Corey Williams finishes second for the second year in a row. And then Alfredo Rodriguez. God, I should check that. I should really check that. I don't remember if Justin won or if it was Corey now. But Alfredo Rodriguez from Best Buddies finishes in third. Luke Lamperde, a name you're going to hear a lot on this show, finishes in fourth. And his Stars and Stripes Trinity Racing jersey was omnipresent at the front of that group. So Adam, I remember last year that after I crashed and I was concussed and after you told me I should sit my butt down and not race anymore, the next thing you told me after that was you slipped back too far and you got into the washing machine effect. It was Luke Lampardi's position right there at the back of the Legion of Los Angeles train throughout the almost entire day. His way of making sure that he didn't end up with chain ring tattoos on his upper thigh and a concussion. I mean, Luke, Luke was the, the best guy all weekend. I mean, the, spoiler alert, he won the overall and that is not something you can fake. He was racing... At, at the front end of that bike race, all those racers see each other numerous times. And the same thing is true with the women's racing. That's why the crashes never happen in the front 10. They happen, you know, in the, in the middle 50. Because those riders don't see everyone every week. And the racers that race each other every week, week in and week out, you get a professional courtesy. 
this professional courtesy is that the riders that know each other that are at the front of the race, you always get a little bit extra grace period or, or a little bit extra leash or whatever you call it to where they don't go out of their way to like just totally screw you over and to make you grab your brakes kind of thing. And Luke is wearing the jersey and everyone knows him. And so you get that when you're up there. And if you establish yourself up there, you get that still. And the last couple laps, like, yeah, he was bumping a little bit and moving around, but I never saw anything like he was challenged for wheels constantly throughout the day until like the last few laps and everyone is. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was pretty much just floating in those in the top wheels, which that is partially because he has the jersey and so he gets that respect. But he also just has the strength to be there and the the confidence through especially at Blue Dome where you have eight eight corners every lap. Uh, you know, he's been racing over in Europe. He's used to being having people leaning on him through the corner and not or knowing how to handle himself through there. So it was a lot, <laughs> just a lot going on for him to be able to stay in those wheels. Um, but yeah, I mean, he also just looked like the strongest guy. One of the the sprint points laps, like a preem lap, it looked like he went for the sprint just because he wanted something to do because they were riding like Legion was on the front riding hard, but not very hard. So he was would just look like he was getting kind of bored and decided he wanted to go for a sprint point. He is 10 years younger than you, Alan. He's 19 years old. I mean, he just turned 19 years old. Did you have... I don't need that kind of information in my life. <laughs> Welcome to the fact that I graduated high school before Celine was born. Did you have that sort of swagger or awareness or self-confidence at the age of 19 to be able to go shoulder to shoulder with, you know, 40 year old or 35 year old men. Me specifically. I mean, I was a runner back then and definitely I did in like the track scene there, but yeah, no way, not on a bike. That is, it's just so much riskier to do that when you're on a bike than running, obviously. Um, so yeah, you would like that really, that really says a lot just about his personality and mindset when he comes to these races. What do you think, Mills? I think Luke was in very good company this weekend. I think this race was one of the most depth, one of the most deep fields for Tulsa they've ever had. Uh, you usually get like one or two good teams. No, you usually get one good team and a couple of teams that are under understaffed that are there that have good riders, but rarely do you have like three or four stacked teams that are but can I talk about some nuts and bolts stuff of the race? I have notes. Yes, I want to hear about the nuts and bolts stuff of the race. And I want to specifically focus in, I know where you're going, so go there. But when you get to the point where we get to that second to last corner, we got to stop. Okay. Because I have questions there. So give us the give us the rundown from the notes that you have, because you've shared these with me, and I think they are genius. Okay, so first off, Legion does what they do because effectively they understand that to stay out of trouble, you have to stay together as a team and you have to protect each other. But to do that, they also have the horsepower to say like, we're going to ride together and we're going to use this course and we're going to leverage the course and utilize speed. And we're going to set a minimum speed on the race. And if anyone, same thing that team sky does on mountains, right? Or, or any of us, sorry. And if you, if, if you want to jump off the front, you are welcome to do that. Everyone has a VO2 power that's that's faster than whatever Sam can ride for an hour. At that level, at least. Not all of us have that. I've ridden with Sam enough to know that my VO2 power is not what he does for an hour. So 
makes me sad. But they do they do set that and they let people go up the road. And if you think about historically or or in races, a one to one chaser to chasey who's working at least and rotating is advantage to the peloton. A two to one in favor of the breakaway is advantage breakaway. Two to one in favor of the peloton is definitely peloton, right? The average speed was 29.4 miles per hour. I always used to ask the riders when I directed the team this thing. So the average speed today is going to be 29.4 miles an hour. We know that from history of this race. Who can ride 29.4 miles an hour by themselves? Raise your hand. Nobody. How many people do you need to be in a breakaway with you to ride 29.4 miles an hour? What's that number? Is it three? Is it five? Depending on your fitness, it could be, you know, two or three or for me, like 27, but it doesn't really matter. You have to be able to ride faster than what you know the average speed of the race is going to be. So when you see these one-off guys going, it literally doesn't matter who it is because Luke Lamperty or whoever is not going to ride 29.4 miles an hour. That's more or less a world tour time trial speed. And there's no world tour riders in that race. So the singles, the one-offs, like why? Some of them have a reason, right? Like I want TV time. I want to have my name called. I made a bet with the guy that does Criterium Nation. I bet him a beer that I would get my name called on day one. That's a good reason to get off the front by yourself. But to think you're going to win the race, it's not realistic. Or think you might have an impact, it's also not realistic. So that's my rant on that. Luke, Luke Lamperty was really well positioned in that he had two or three big teams that would fix all his problems. That Any problem that went up the road, he, he could just sit back and let him do it. Question about automatic. They went for the first cream. Was that a U.S. US Crit Cup? Yeah, so the first seven laps, yeah. Okay, because they were super active. I thought I was expecting that to happen all weekend, but it only happened at the beginning of the first day, and they kind of vanished. So that explained that. The Legion guys did awesome. Automatic challenge a few times, but then they kind of faded away. thought it was a good race as a whole, but can we, can we talk about Gibbons and that free lap thing? Yeah, so give us a... Alan, can you give us kind of a breakdown of what the hell you saw with Tom? I We're going to do a full show next week, hopefully, about safety. And part of that is going to be what happens or does not happen in the pit. So we can we can leave the discussion about what should be in the pit, what is an authorized mechanical, you know, pit bikes, all those sort of things for later. But just what did we see happen? Well, what we didn't see on the live stream was the fact that he crashed and broke his seat post. Um, So all we saw was like kind of the overtop view, the bunches rolling around the course. And then all of a sudden they cut to the pit and there's Tom standing there, not in the pit. He's actually like on the course trying to shout at his teammates that he needs a bike because obviously broken seat post, you can't ride that to the finish. And the, the pit didn't have any neutral bikes for people to use which i would say for a race like tulsa tough is pretty shocking um you know when we're at redlands when we're at gila they always come equipped fully equipped with a full range of bikes you know so if you need a small one extra large they have it for tulsa tough to not have a single especially since it is a part of the ACC to not have a single neutral bike for him to have jumped on is pretty surprising. So he ended up having to try and communicate with his teammates because they didn't have radios while they were racing. He was stood in the pit for 
I think it was four, maybe five laps by the time uh, Aldo finally pulled over and gave him his bike to use. Yeah, so it was just kind of a flurry of action trying to to sort out how to get Tom on a bike and back into the race. Yeah, and he had to get Aldo's bike because Tom is not a wee man. Neither is Aldo. So they're both the only two guys on the team who probably could be working interchangeably. So, Mills, what do you want to spin off of that? Aldo is capable of doing very well on Friday and in for the whole for the whole weekend. Here, here's my the rules issue is that uh, you can't expect Tom, you can't expect Gibbons to know because he's in the moment. He's thinking, and and what he did was fantastic. He made all these like it's a very pliable dynamic situation, and bike racers tend to do either really really well in these situations or they like just stare forward and pedal harder, right? Which that's a preview of later, but, but they were able to figure that out and get that done. They didn't do it fast enough. And so Gibbons goes back in, he's, he's listed as two laps down. So he was in the pit far too long, which is one issue. He should never have been allowed back in that race because they listed him as two laps down. So it's up to the official, the pit officials by rule, and the announcers, when they, before you start, they say something like, all riders out of contention will be pulled. So Gibbons going back in at two laps down, that is effectively the same as Gibbons sitting up and you lap him twice and then he gets back in. It's, it's for all intents and purposes the same. He should have never been allowed back in the race because he gets back in. He definitely has an influence in the last two laps of that race because he is a fantastic sprinter. And I think he got sixth on the day before they were like, oh, no, you're two laps down, right? So all those sacrifices, his race, Gibbons gets in, Gibbons, he didn't necessarily, he didn't knock anyone down or do anything wrong. He was just there. And, and that influenced everything around him, right? But but why did the official let him back in the race? And and that that to me is frustrating. But he was back in, right? It was pretty shocking to see the official let him back in because it's not like he wasn't aware of how many laps had gone by while Gibbons was still in uh, the pit. Although the official there, like the benefit of the doubt, it's that I don't think Tom was going to be stopped from getting back into the race once he had a bike that he could ride. Like, I mean, that he is obviously an extremely determined person. And I think there would have been a lot of shouting and like shoving to keep Tom from getting back into the race. That's that's still the official job. Is he has to say, you can't go back in or you were disqualified and you're out of the weekend. But let's talk about the last lap. Because the last lap and the last two corners are the thing that makes this race what it is. And it's Justin Williams played a huge role in that, even though his name did not appear prominently in the results. In the last two corners, Luke Lamparity and Alfredo Rodriguez had to come around multiple people to put themselves in a position to win. Luke got taken into the barrier on two to go or two corners to go, and Alfredo dives underneath for the final two corners. There's a lot of calculated risk-taking that happens right there. And Adam, you are on record as having said, the top five that go through corner two to go are your top five for the win. What happens in those last two corners? It was messy. <laughs> to, say, to say, it wasn't, I don't think it was anything illegal, I think. Um, Luke got taken wide 
by who was in front of him just took a wide line. It was Ty. It was Magner. So Ty went wide because Ty's trying to hold speed. He sees Luke come up, but Ty's also thinking maybe he saw, maybe he didn't. That's the advantage of being in front is that you get to pick your line. You can't deviate from the line you choose, but you can choose your line. Man, never go wide on those guys in the last corner or two. Because you can always take someone wide and say that it was just your line. Alfredo had the right move going diving under. That was the right move. But to your to what Rob said, like the calculated risk, like we we work on it in our cross clinics and we did those. Um, is that one, you have to learn how to push for the spot to, to make the pass, but also when you're being challenged and there's a corner coming up and there's tape involved or a tree or whatever, you have to know when to quit. You have to know when to grab your brakes and back out and finish wherever you finish because cannot win a bike race lying on the ground and to watch luke do that as a 19 year old was fantastic because because ty was in a position that he was going fast ty was committed to that outside line like if luke would have hit him it would have knocked him both down probably because ty couldn't have changed his line at that speed let's talk about the fc i like this one fc tulsa the football club and tulsa arts district they presented the top three members of the podium with fc tulsa jerseys after the fact uh i think that's great it's a black and gold jersey so it really went well with skylar schneider's overall motif she wins for the second day in a row i think that Eventually, somebody would get bored of winning that much. Maybe. I don't know, but I've never been her. So she wins. Olivia Cummins, the name we previewed earlier, finishes in second place for Lux. And then Peter Mullins from Australia and Rock Salt Live SRAM, which is different than Celine's team, Roxo, comes in third. This race was hot and hot in the temperature sense, not as hot as the final day. Celine I'm going to pivot to you first because you've suffered through the heat a lot this year. I want to have you talk about the way it feels. And then I want Mills to talk about the way that it physiologically deals with the body physiologically deals with it. Because I know that Source has recently put on a heat adaptation webinar, but you could tell that the field felt the impact of the heat that day. You were there last year. I've seen you icing yourself quite a bit this year on the Instas. How much does that heat just sap your strength? I mean, <laughs> it's like the best thing that I can compare it to is like being at altitude because it just like puts a ceiling on your performance. And once you're redlined like it's so hard to cool yourself back off again once you've reached the point where you're just baking and overheating i mean yeah so it was temperature wise really similar to how it was last year where friday was kind of okay and then saturday you like you're like uh oh <laughs> and then sunday it's like okay it's like really got to be on top of the hydration or you could actually end up in the hospital and what makes saturday extra gnarly that you might not notice like initially just as a spectator is all of the concrete from the buildings and the sun just beating down at that time of day and the pavement, everything around you. It's not just the air, like everything around you is radiating heat and it's suffocating. Like you feel like you can't breathe. Um, especially with the humidity, your body just can't compensate. And at a certain point, it's like, it's just horrible. It feels horrible. <laughs> so the arts district is in the Northwest corner of 
Tulsa downtown. There are no tall buildings. There's no trees. There's nothing that's going to block the sun from hitting it all damn day long. And, you know, as a rider, you need to prepare for this. You need to get ready for this. One of the things that we've talked about in crit racing is time and time under under load or time under stress, how a 100K crit is a different beast than a 60K crit. Mills, when it comes down to it, when you're looking at a 60-minute crit, but the crit is in 90-plus degrees dead set in the sun, is that going to make it feel more like a 75-minute or 90-minute crit physiologically? Well, also, let's not forget, though, they're staging about an hour before they're racing. So they're out in that heat long before they start racing. Fair point. So, Celine, this is unique to Tulsa. Explain, like, I don't know why, but like every other crit I've ever gone to, you stage 10 minutes beforehand or whatever. Tulsa, like Kristen Arnold said a long time ago on the show, you're there an hour beforehand. Yeah, I mean, the first few laps are so dangerous while people are getting sorted about where they belong in the peloton that if you aren't staged right at the front, it's pretty risky because you could get caught up behind something that's just unavoidable. So it does you favors to stage early, but then you're also baking for an extra hour. Fortunately, they put out the kiddie pool with the the drinks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mills, tell us about the way that the body physically adapts here. I mean, the, the the quick take without getting too far into it is at that high of temperature, everything has much more dramatic repercussions. So VO2 effort going up the hill, which everyone was freaking like happy to do <laughs> in the men and women's races. Everyone's like, yeah, I'm rested from that downhill. I'm going to punch it as hard as I can up the hill. I'm going to get to that top of the hill corner. And then I'm going to realize I'm way nuked and my stomach's going to hurt and my arms are going to be tired and I'm going to be moderately dizzy. I'm going to turn that corner and I'm going to want to coast. And that's when, that's when the, the Peloton bring everything back. It's not, it's, it's not the uphills, the downhill where everyone was losing time. Um, and that's just because if you, you drop that temperature, like it rained. The last time I did Tulsa in the pro race, it rained on Saturday and it was fantastic because everyone there is super fit and from the way it looked in the women's race and in the men's race too it's like just pedal as hard as you want to pedal for as long as you want to do it because it's not hot and this race is super fast in the hot weather so I would trade I would trade wet roads for not being 110 degrees on course every single time and I think as scary as that bottom of the hill corner is for everybody like at that level there's this intense understanding of what happens to the human body when you hit a barrier at 40 miles an hour. And there's also this intense like pressure of, you know, survival that keeps you from doing it. So I, I wouldn't, I don't think anyone in that race would be scared of racing in the rain. I think they would all choose to race in the rain on that course over like a hot sunny day. Well, yeah. And honestly, that bottom corner, well, when it's dry, you do come into it super fast. Uh, is actually wide open, which like is kind of foreshadowing for the men's race. But yeah, it's I wouldn't really say it's sketchy in the sense of it being like narrow or having like a weird camber to it. 
I mean, you come into it very fast, but like you said, in the rain, people know how to control that. This one was interesting because the wind was coming from the west, which put by default the draft on the left side going down that hill. The women really used that to their advantage in the final laps because Early on, everybody kept favoring the outside line, kept favoring the outside line. And then when Legion started to twist the screws on all of the women, they started favoring that inside line. And, you know, the way that they, they've taken their, their keys from the men, you know, they would stay inside, 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 and then come out and then go back in at that bottom corner, cutting off anybody coming over the top of them. And, you know, that was just such a critical way that they approached this race, Legion had to burn off a lot of its riders to stay successful here. This was not a race that I perceived that Skylar could win and then Kendall could come in second and Alexis come in third. I mean, the way that it, it played out here, you know, Skylar won, Kendall came in fourth, Alexis came in sixth. I mean, that's residual from them coming through that last corner hot. And talk to us, you know, Celine, talk to us about Olivia Cummins. She's the youngster, and I hate saying that because it makes me sound like my grandfather, the youngster from Lux, who really kind of put a scare into the Legion train there in that last lap. Well, I feel like we should back up just one more lap when it was back up. Take us oh, to no. that. It was, it was one lap to go when we saw Jennifer Valente open up her sprint. Oh yes. And that caused a lot of confusion because initially it was like, is she going for a last lap flyer? And then it became evident that she thought it was the last lap. Um, and so she sits up and tries to get back in to the Peloton pretty far up. And because the speed differential is so intensely different and Legion's at the front drilling it and Jennifer's trying to get back in. And I think she just kind of goes back in, even though there was just an insane momentum difference. She causes a field split and Olivia happens to be on the right side of that rubber band snap, which like good for her. She positioned herself really well. She's a very intelligent rider. She knows where to be and what wheels to follow. But I will say, I think that field split is why Alexis and Kendall were able to be in the top 10 still, <laughs> um, because all those other riders had to make up so much more ground. Like you see Maggie, she's on the wrong side of the field split and she's just like burying herself for way longer than she should, you know, if she had been on the other side of that. Can I can I talk about DNA in that race, too? They I thought they had I thought they had a pretty good game plan, which was them and Lux combined which was just to apply pressure. Because when it's that hot, those little body blows kind of add up. Because you're just like, you're sinking more and more heat, and then at some point you can't do it anymore. But, man, at like 11 minutes in, when something happened and Maggie missed it and decided that she had to be in the split. That, that split could have gone. It maybe couldn't have gone, but it could have gone pretty easily. And Maggie is the one that closed it down. Like, that was... That was a lap and a half. That was, she pedaled down the hill twice, I think. That's that's a really big match to ask probably one of the best three sprinters in the race to, to burn right then. So it was also 11 minutes in. So was she a little bit impatient and could have let it, let it ride? 
and, and demanded her teammates fix that problem? Or did, was it the right call? Like, I get, this has to come back right now. It's going to get out of hand. I don't, I don't have that answer, but that's a really big match to burn. And I was, it was interesting because it made it very evident about what, what was going to happen all day long, both in the women's and the men's race was that there was always going to be someone up the road, no matter what anyone tried to do. And there's nothing anyone could do to stop it, which, which I guess from a entertainment perspective, that makes it really interesting because now you're making people make decisions can make bad ones i will say that not to like dunk on dna at all because they do have really talented riders but i feel like as soon as the sprinter is doing everybody else's job it's because no one else can do the job or maggie's not the sprinter but based on where she has been ending up every day it would be shocking that she wasn't the sprinter unless she was working for mia but there's what four other DNA riders that could have been doing that work. I just found it a bit. Um, I don't know. I love Maggie. So I just want people to do the work for her. <laughs> there, well, there's also this concept that I would, I would, I always like to talk about the rebound because I'm, I'm a big basketball guy and actually like, you know, game five of the finals is happening right now in the NBA. So I'm, I'm I want to go watch that when this is over, but um, there's always a rebound effect after all these breakaways that don't work, right? Like a breakaway is just a missed shot when they come back. And, and you got to get the rebound and try again sort of thing. And I always stress to the teams when I was working with them that if you get a rider up the road, you have to know where the counters are coming from and you have to be ready for the rebound because when it comes back, so the breakaway, if the next move comes from 15 riders back, you need to make sure you have someone needs to be in that 15 riders back realm to like roll into the next move so you're represented. And is it this simple concept of like DNA just missed the rebound and they missed them, they missed the split? Because if Maggie would have been back there and been in that split, I think it would have ridden. I think that would have been done for the day. Um, or would have forced someone else to like do a one and a half lap super pole. And if that's the case, it's just a simple like, we screwed it up and we got to fix it. Someone has to fall on that sword. It was interesting though. That was, that was, it was 11 minutes in and that was probably some of the most interesting parts of the race up until like the last handful of laps. Cause I, I, and to fast forward, I thought Jennifer was doing like her 3k move to go for it. And I was really happy to see it if she was going to do it. It's like, it's going to be great. And she miscounted laps, which everyone's done. It. So don't make fun of the team. You've all done it. And if you say you haven't done it, then you're lying. Yeah. At least she didn't raise her hands up and get the great picture. So that's a good thing. I want to talk about a rebound that happened and it comes from a man named Tom Gibbons. And it was a rebound. I don't know from the day before with the frustrations of the relegation or a rebound for somebody who's just frustrated with the way that the race was playing out on the men's side. But I think it was Tom Gibbons and Johnny Brown from Miami Blazers, got up the road in the middle of the men's race. Now, the men's race was a very Legion-controlled affair. They let the ones and twos go up the road, but when you let a one and two with Johnny Brown, American road race national champion, and Tom Gibbons, you know, just the legend that he is, get up the road, now you're talking about categorically a different person, a different type of thing. You know, Adam, what did you make of that 
breakaway midway through the men's 60 minute race. That was threatening. That was a that was a move to to preface what happened in the women's race when there's always someone up the road and the race kind of welded it all back together naturally. In the men's race, you saw different mixtures and you saw numerous um, groups of like two go up the road and then one bridges. So I, I call it build a break. It's really hard to read. But if you're a team riding tempo on the front, you're like, oh, two isn't a big deal. Oh, one more up there. That's not a big deal. Oh, now two went across. Now it's five. And you have, and, and like Legion's rotating four to chase. Like that's a problem at that point. Uh, then you're asking for help from best buddies or whoever, right? But when you get two really good riders up the road, like two fantastic riders act like four, you know, normal riders or like 17 of me. But it's a different game at that point. And you have to put people on the front and they got to they got to ride harder than they want to ride. Yeah. I mean, like we were talking about or when you were talking about the like one person taking a flyer on Blue Dome night, it doesn't really matter. Uh, they're not going to be able to ride what Sam Boardman does. But when you have Johnny Brown and Thomas Gibbons, who are two people who can ride as hard as um, Sam and Alec, who obviously are both just complete animals on their own right that changes things immensely where it's like they can't just, you know, ride their tempo anymore. Now you're forcing them to ride really hard up and down that hill, multiple laps in a row, not even just to like bring the group back, but to hold the gap steady. That's like one thing that I really like about the Saturday course versus Friday is that you have room for there to be groups of people to get off the front and change the whole dynamic of the race. Was it a mistake for Gibbons to go? Could he have won that race? So I think a couple people made some mistakes in going. One, and maybe they were bored. I guess it's going back to like, you have to have a reason to do stuff. You know, Luke Lamperty in that Friday race, maybe he was just trying to find the timing for the sprint. Because that's a reason to go for it, to do it, right? Gibbons, I think, forfeited his chance to, to win when he went off the front. Dillman, that guy did so well all weekend, but he was always off the front by himself. And if he could have selected the groups he was with a little bit more, he burns, maybe burns less of a match. Maybe he can do something a little bit different. But I think he he was so close to doing some phenomenal rides. And, and in reality, he did do well. He finished like top 10, I think, two days. But he, he could have really influenced that race a lot more. But yeah, so I think he wastes some energy. I think, uh, I think Gibbons really kind of kind of got overzealous on Saturday. Uh, and then he paid. Yeah, there were because there were a lot of different moves, moves like whether they lasted a lap or three laps that were going kind of in those last like 20 to 10 laps to go range. So if he could have been a little bit more selective or a little bit more patient, perhaps just waited closer to the finish of the race, like maybe something would have stuck because like we saw Legion did get kind of. I don't want to say worked over, but worn down by the time we hit five laps to go. And and I think that goes back to the depth of the of the race compared to before. So, I mean, last year, in all honesty, you didn't have five riders that were capable of getting up the road like that to establish something that would last for eight minutes like that. Like that moved it. At least in my notes, I think it was for eight minutes. So you stick someone up the front for eight minutes, and that's that's a big big effort. And, but it's halfway through. So not only that, but you have these riders that are confident in their own ability to do it and then get back and be like, well, you know, that didn't work, but I can still ride. And 
and that takes a lot of confidence and a lot of ability. But it was it was interesting to see that the like vice grip that Legion has had for the last two years in the Peloton was starting to loosen, and they're not letting go of that. Player. I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by like Legion has done so well over the years that for them to lose like one of their target races right now, like that's the first race they would have lost in like two years for their target races, right? What team wouldn't take that? We know, we know that Legion has a game plan. We know that Best Buddies has a game plan to counter that. We have been talking for the last year or so about the idea of people adjusting to Legion's strategy and then Legion counter-adjusting. One of the things that, and I don't know why we did this last year, but we did it and it works out here very well for us to tell the story of the last four laps of 2021 versus the last four laps of 2022. We timed those laps last year, we timed the laps this year. Now these are qualitative. I think I got that right. Yes, qualitative measurements, not quantitative. So it is not the precise number that we're interested in, and it's the trend between the numbers. Uh, it's good that we got an engineer and Alan on here to explain the math. Um, but in 2021, the last four laps with Legion driving it all the way through were a classic negative split. One minute and 43 seconds, one minute, 37 seconds, one minute, 33 seconds, and one minute and 29 seconds. Legion goes one, two, three, and four that day. In 2022, it's different. One minute and 41 seconds, one minute and 42 seconds, and then the negative splitting starts at 133 and 129. The problem is, between the 142 with three laps to go and the 133 with two laps to go, Best Buddies takes over on the downhill, coming all the way around Legion over the top with their full squad. Here's where we get to bring Sharon Smith into this a little bit because he commented that Legion had a different group of people this year than they did last year. You know, Justin is coming back from injury. Corey just uh, congratulations to him. You know, just had his, his his he and his partner had their first child. So I think it was a baby girl. So kudos to him. Ty Williams was not a part of this. So, yes, they did not have the same six people players make plays teams execute legion was trying to execute the same game plan but they did not execute it as well as they did because they did not straight negative split best buddies took advantage of that mills you've been so into the math on this explain what we can learn by looking at the way those last four laps played out in 2021 versus 2022 so I made a comment earlier about like VO2 power, right? So VO2 power in the classic sense is anything, you know, under five minutes. So if they're at three laps to go, that's a minute, roughly a minute and a half and a minute and a half. So that's three minutes. That's well into that territory. The fresher rider is going to do better. And when you look at best buddies, they were, they were really active early. Tanner Ward took a flyer and Tanner is like, Tanner is fantastic this year. He's done so much for that team. And then Best Buddies disappeared for 50 minutes. You didn't see him. 
you know, I think a couple of them maybe marked the move and he pulled through, like you saw the Jersey, but they were not anywhere in mass anywhere. And then all of a sudden they were on the front. The math on that works out by they immediately accelerate to what I would call almost like critical, like terminal velocity. They immediately go to like almost terminal velocity on the course, which is about a minute 30, minute 33, minute 29, the last two laps. And that makes it exponentially more difficult to bring any kind of real counter effort around it. And if you're watching it, like I was at home live, like I'm yelling at the TV. So their best buddies was fantastic. They got around, they really caused some problems doing that. Alec Cowan made a hero move to put him and Gavin back in front, but they left tie. This was with that one lap to go range. On the last lap going up the hill, going to three corners to go. That didn't particularly concern me because of all the racers in that peloton, I believe only Ty Magner and Luke Lamperti are former US Pro Criterium champions. So if anyone can finish and figure it out under chaos and under duress, it's Ty. Ty's experienced, he's been everywhere, he's raced everything. So I was watching it like, this is gonna be interesting because I, I still had faith in Ty to figure it out. I thought it was winnable for Ty until Gavin punched it on the downhill, effectively providing a lead out for best buddies. Had he not, and just got out of the way because his timing was off. Also, Gavin was like fifth or something from the night before, so he was still in the runnings for the overall. But had he just pulled off and allowed Alfredo and Gomez to come through, you're putting those two like A-list sprinters in a situation where one of them has to sacrifice for the other on the downhill. I've, I'm not saying they haven't done it because I haven't watched a bunch, a bunch of their races. I've never seen either one of them lead out anyone. So you're putting these two great sprinters in a situation that I don't think they've been in. I will say Gomez has led out Alfredo like a few times this year to be fair. Yeah. So it's it still was a potential to be something new and different, right? But I think that was, then at that point, if, if Gomez leads out Alfredo, then Ty only has to come around Alfredo, which is not easy. Alfredo has been, hasn't he been like second or third in two Utah stages or something like phenomenal? Well, I know that Alfredo's won three or four races already this year and three or four legit races too. And he rode on Elevate when I worked for him for Elevate for a couple of years. And he's, he's a fantastic sprinter. I don't know if Ty could have beat him, but that was the only chance he had. And when Gavin gassed it down the hill, I think he'd ruined the chance. But but then Gavin was also, he also maintained his really good standing in the overall as well. Gavin did finish fifth the night before. He finishes fifth on this night. Uh, Ty finishes in fourth. And Luke Lamperde in third. Alfredo and Brian Gomez go one-two for best buddies. That brings us to what is celebrated as the big one for the weekend. Uh, I'm sure there's some debate on whether or not Crybaby Hill, the River Riverside Park criterium is really the big one, but definitely by the number of fans dressed crazily and drinking a lot of light beer, this is the race of the races. On the women's side, hang on, go ahead. I just, we can't move on to Crybaby without talking about the fact that Brian Gomez went through that last turn, literally going the speed of sound. <laughs> like That was just the craziest moment for me of that entire race was watching him dive into the turn 
And like from the camera angle that they show him going in, you were just sure that he's like, there's no way he's coming out the other side. He's going to slide out and just die into the barriers. But yeah, I mean, he put distance into Alfredo and everybody behind him just through that last turn. And that was like one of the most impressive displays of like race lines and bike handling that I think we saw all weekend long. After the fact, he told the the Chad Andrews, the interviewer, that uh, he was trying to lead Alfredo out and that he just uh, really succeeded at the lead out part. So he ended up winning himself. I was just saying what did it for me was that he passed the rider in front of him on the outside. Like he didn't do the classic, take the inside line, shortest line, fastest line, etc. Like he put a gap into the rider in front of him by taking the outside line. And it was, it was just wild. Just even the speed differential between the two of them. He gave up the optimal line and went faster. Yeah. It was insane. Chills. <laughs> with Riverside Park, with Crybaby Hill, it is named Crybaby Hill not because of the hill itself. It's named Crybaby Hill because the original residents complained about the existence of the race. And so all the fans started calling them Crybabies. At least that's how it's been explained to me. I don't know. That could be apocryphal. But on the women's side, Skylar Schneider sweeps the entire weekend for Legion. Marley's Meas Garcia from Virginia Blue Ridge 2024 finishes in second and Alexis Ryan finishes in third. Peter Mullins again in there for fourth place. And that would be your top group. There is a time split after that. This race is kind of something special uh, for anybody who's ever done it. Adam, can you explain the dynamic nature of the energy output that goes into doing a race which is only four corners, ostensibly, but features that hill. So it's also the third one, and the Tulsa courses go from easiest to hardest, and you get less than 24 hours of rest in between, which I, I figured that out the very first year I did it. I was like, man, we're racing earlier every day, and the race is getting harder. This is hard. But yeah, the, the energy output dynamics and, and the heat it was record was it record highs that day in Tulsa I know it was supposed to be close but and you go up that hill so hard and then you do the dip so that I believe the highest elevation point on that course is not crybaby hill it is a right hand turn afterwards no it is after the right hand turn afterwards before you go down the hill if I, if I saw the Strava file how I thought I saw it today. Yeah, it's where they put the Red Bull banner. And the brakes never go on the hill. Ever since they put the barriers in, the breakaways have never gone on the hill. It's always gone after the right-hand corner. And that's always like where they never have cameras. Also, has anyone else noticed how frustrating that is? <laughs> uh, I'm not even going to get into the rant about like the bandwidth. Actually, I'm going to rant about it. In 2015, over 100,000 people watched Crime and it's got, it has to be higher now. And every year they never have enough bandwidth and every year they get more, they have to get more. I assume they are. And every year it's the same problem. So I really hope they figure it out because the production value loss of not having that thing, being able to watch it and be satisfied with it is like, that's the probably the best race of the whole weekend. And it's also the one that no one can watch. And people are like, 
legitimately angry. I don't blame them. Well, it's just so frustrating that we have to keep going back to having like the same conversation after every big crit that we do, where it's like people want to watch, but then they can't, or, you know, the stream is happening, but you can't see anything that is happening. Like, I don't know. We've been talking about it for like a year now, and it seems like it's just not changing. I, I saw lots of ice packs and jerseys on Sunday. The women's race looked, it looked lethargic. That's how hot it was. It didn't look slow. It looked lethargic. It looked like all the women had it in mind. Like, I really want to do something and swing for the fences. But if I do it and it doesn't work, I'm going to be drinking beer. And it's lap two. It's great to see the the best athletes on the planet, basically, like, making those calculated decisions. It's a bummer because that's also another race that I've done in the rain. And I can categorically tell you it is way better in the rain than it is when it's not I, I would love to see that in the rain. I don't even think it would change the outcome of the race. I think the top five would still be the top five. We just make it faster. Only 28, eight, or 27, excuse me, of the women who started this race finished within a minute of the winner. Number 28 was Jennifer Valente, and she finished a minute and 19 seconds back. There is a slaughter fest that happens with this race. It is a the definition of the race of attrition, but you still keep seeing the same great names. Olivia Cummins, again, a top 10 for the Lux rider. You know, you've got somebody like Brittany Parfrey from Colavita, who's been finishing well, or Maddie Ward from Instafund, or one of my new favorites, Taylor, Kuyuk White from Philly Bike Expo, who's just, you know, <clears throat> she's got style. She's got style that I like. But like, Celine, you did it last year. How taxing was it for you? How hard did you regret all of your decisions ever being made up until that point in time? Honestly, just the fact that it was not surrounded by concrete made it feel so much better than Saturday last year. I wish last year that they had allowed a feed like they did this year, because I think that would have made a really big difference. My teammate Hannah said she drank three bottles. So last year I had two, drank both and ran out with 10 to go. Could have definitely used a third bottle. <laughs> and it was really cool to see how many fans were pouring water on the riders, which is something I definitely missed last year too. So just seeing how much more prepared they were for the heat, I think made a really big difference. Having a feed, having letting spectators pour water on the riders. I think that just completely changed it for the better. The the women's race was the, the ice packs definitely matter. Could you do ice pack hand ups too in that feed zone? Is any did anyone I thought I saw some doing it. Yeah, they they were doing it this year, yeah. And the the Legion team did a fantastic job of always being at the front or near the front and covering like the rebounds, but they were never on the front. If that makes sense. Uh, rarely, I guess, rarely compared to what like I would have expected. Although I don't know if that was their plan because in the, like the pre-race interview, Skylar was talking about how they were going to put on a show. Um, so I do think that they had intended to kind of light it up a little bit more than they actually ended up doing. They're more active, but everyone was more active in trying, which was a great, like, like preview for, for the men's race to see like, oh, these women's teams are really going for it. And 
just throwing caution to the wind because if, when it's that hot, like if you overheat ever up that hill, or if you overheat up the hill, then you keep throttling it and you go across the bottom. When you go up the hill again, you have nothing. Like you crawl up it. And so um, to see them just going for it like that, I mean, it was, it was pretty fantastic. I mean, I would say it was the highest level of, of women's racing you've ever seen in Tulsa. Just like depth and, and like quality of racing. So let's talk about that men's race that ends the weekend. Doesn't necessarily cap it. I don't know if you can cap the way that the women did throughout the course of the weekend and how Skylar Schneider wins three in a row. But on the men's side, the results are very intriguing. I guess Luke Lamperde from Trinity Racing wins in a sprint against Thomas Gibbons from Automatic and Cesar Serna from Team Audi McKinney Encore Wire presented by Caden Cycling. I believe that's a Texas team. All three of them were right there. There there was a pretty tight group through the top 10 with Drew Dillman finishing in ninth place. But, you know, what you don't see in the top five is anybody from Legion of Los Angeles. This was a race that was won last year by Tyler Williams. You know, Luke Lamperde, is he as good as we think he is? Because, I mean, this is a this is a pretty seminal race weekend for him, in the United States at least. I, I think Luke was the best rider in the race all weekend. He, especially on Sunday, he took off at the beginning because it's only 70 minutes and a million degrees, I'm just going to go for it. And I, I firmly believe that had that been allowed to ride, like that would have been the game right there. He took off in the middle of the race and then he, they did that at the end. Like he, and he was all, he was never out of top 10. He was flowing into everything. He, he was the best, the best rider there by probably by Paramount. To answer your question, I, I think he's better than people think he is. Like when he won the stars and stripes Jersey, Corey had crashed. So I think that provided a lot of opportunity for people to undermine him. Like, Oh, there was a really big crash. Maybe that's the only reason he won. But I think just what he has consistently displayed proves all of those people wrong. Like he is objectively the best rider there. Now we can start speculating on whether he repeats. Yeah, it'd be hard to to bet against him after watching him this weekend. And he's doing this all freelance. He's doing this all solo, which is interesting because he's working well against other teams. Now, is this a race, Adam, that you you can really do team dynamics in, or is it just too hard? Absolutely, you can do team dynamics. It's a it's a road criterion. It makes. It makes him different from like the vice grip on Friday where you just ride hard and use the corners and just, you know, leverage that and let the scrum fight behind you. It's, it's more like managing really big, powerful efforts and using your, like using your, your, your athletes and, and leveraging like the load they can do to make sure you're represented and then also make sure you can try and win. At some point, uh, like about 30, 35 minutes in, for example, like Sam Boardman, arguably one of the strongest riders in the race, got the green light. And, and Sam's a guy that when you tell him like, Sam, go win the race, like it is immediately he's off the leash and you know, like you, there's no doubt about it. Sam's off the leash and you saw him like right across the break. And I, 
I, I want to say like that was within seconds of someone telling him go race instead of like don't ride tempo go race like that was within seconds um, Sam's a phenomenal rider but but definitely there's there's a lot of team dynamics at play best buddies had numbers all day long what was that team the Emmanuel Iberry and second bike that team that team came to play on Sunday they were fun to watch at one point they had two out of four in, the, in a split up the road that had significant time. And it wasn't obvious that they were going to come back. It was, well, it was obvious there was no one to chase it. it. The race would bring it back or it wasn't going to come back. They were, they were there to play. Patrick Welsh, the Nordic skier. I, when, I, when I heard someone talking about him. The Kelly Benefits kid. Yeah, he's a Nordic skier. I heard that, and I was like, "Man, if he can tolerate the heat, like he's going to be he's Minnesota boy." So that was that was solid. Um, you know, you saw. I think we saw everyone lean on Legion really early, even though they were they were under undermanned for that event, relatively speaking. Like it was obvious that Corey wasn't the Corey Williams that we've seen before, um, and it's also a hundred like record heat. So who knows? I don't think Justin even started. Did he have a replacement or was it they just started with five? They just started with five. Yeah. And that being the case, I was almost surprised to see that they didn't kind of let their guys off the leash earlier and just like kind of not throw their hands up, but just be like, nope, we're not going to drag everything back for you guys today. Like we're just going to try and get our guys in the break um, and kind of take the pressure off of themselves that way but they did still for the first half of the, the race, we saw them still kind of being the ones to ride. Which was bizarre to me because they still have, I mean, they have an Olympian, they have Sam, they have Alec Cowan, who's in the break at Joe Martin and did fantastic. And, and they have Ty Magner as like four, probably still four of the best 12 guys in so it was it was a little bit surprising they didn't just try and say let's make this really messy and see what happens because because they still have the tools to make that work for them too. To Sam Boardman's credit, he did he was the highest finisher for Legion in sixth place, same time as you know Luke Lamperde and company in the win. You know Adam, I, I want to point out Drew Dillman's name here again in ninth place for Texas Roadhouse. And there's a team that we should have mentioned with yesterday's race, with the the second race, DCC. They were highly active throughout all of this, and you know they they are the team of Sam Morris, uh, the the legendary Maggie Colesister's boyfriend. You know Oscar Pashan, I think is his name, was, finished in the top ten for for them. So you know they're out there doing the aggressive work. Can we do a quick wrap up here of kind of final thoughts on the weekend? Selena, I want to start with you merely because on the screen in front of me, you're in the bottom right hand corner. So that's where my eye is automatically going to. What are your final thoughts on, on this weekend? Well, I feel like there's a lot more still to be covered, even as we're approaching the 90 minute mark, um, which kind of leads into we've we're going to have more episodes on this. <laughs> um, but I guess more of a question than anything is why the leaders jerseys were not worn on Sunday. Uh, Skyler did mention 
that she was wearing the Rafa Super Light Summers jersey. I don't know who makes the the leaders jerseys. Um, it was Eliel. Yeah, I, I know Eliel has a fantastic hot weather jersey. That may not have been what the race had for the riders to wear. And so if you have a situation where it's 100 degrees and you wear your super light team summer jersey or you wear a heavy training jersey because the races don't buy this super nice stuff, right? They buy the stuff that, that anyway, they, they may not have bought the super light summer jersey, right? Where you have this opportunity to wear a different jersey that maybe isn't super lightweight. I mean, it's worth the hundred dollar fine or whatever the fine would be, right? To wear your own. I guess my next question is, um, like, because that was my theory as well. But like, the leader's jersey was so much of a lighter color, like the yellow and orange. And on a day where like the UVs are that high, would that offset the weight of the fabric? Not if it's wet. Because then water is going to evaporate all at the same temperature. But if you're getting splashed, if you're getting like bottles like crazy, then you're going to spray yourself. Alan, what are your final thoughts on this weekend? Oh, boy. Um, I guess kind of leaving a lot of thoughts, leave what we're going to talk about next week for next week. But yeah, I mean, it was still really exciting racing to watch. Uh, yeah, the races were all really good. Like Mill said, it's clearly the deepest racing we've had in a long time so that's really exciting to see and i like that you know people really care about what's happening you know on the safety side but also just the racing side it's nice to see so many people i guess yeah caring wanting to be involved and really trying to push for the like progression of criterium racing in the u.s um i think that says a lot and it's good that it's kind of happening at Tulsa, which is, you know, our like world championships of crit racing, basically. So Mills, you get the final word because I don't, I I've run out of thoughts. First is that Luke did the Jersey proper. this week. Let's give him that. He, he won one out of three, which in that's in that, that event is fantastic. He won the overall. Can't fake that. Um, second is that, I heard a lot of very loud cheering on Saturday when Legion lost. And it made me think about when you're dominant, that dominant for that long, everybody loves a winner. Everyone hates a winner too. The most hated team in Major League Baseball are the Yankees. They're also the most successful team, right? When the Chicago Bulls, probably Rob's favorite basketball team, were so big in the 90s, everyone hated them except people in Chicago. If you're successful, people don't like you. And the fact that so much cheering was happening when Legion didn't win is a true testament to what they've done and and how it's, if nothing else, if it's driving us to watch these races, then they've accomplished a lot more than what's happened in the past. And we should, we should be all be thankful for that at some level, but then also recognize like what, what that program is. And, and if any of us think that Legion is going to say, Oh, we kind of, we kind of got beat up a little bit this weekend. That's not, that's not good for us. Like they're, they're going to, they're going to make some changes too. And the same game plan that worked against them this weekend probably will never work again this year. Well, guys, thank you so much for breaking this down. 
I'm going to have to edit the crap out of this now to try to get it into a manageable time frame. But thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com, your source for everything in the only place on the internet for independent cycling media. We will be off next week. We will be back the week after that. Hopefully, we're working the details on the first episode of our series of shows about safety, which we teased a little bit during the course of this. We're going to start where all such inquiries should start, inside, taking a look at us, the riders. And one of the places that I want to talk about safety is through mentorship. Older, more experienced riders, mentoring the younger generation. And we've got two people who you will very much want to hear from their experiences as a mentor and mentee. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Rob Kelly. We will be back, I promise you, for more stories from our Criterium Nation.